This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you're new to 88.7 for the next hour, we take people's questions. You can call us directly here in the studio here in this uh, new month, and we're glad to be here with you to answer questions that you may have as it relates to life, family, ministry, or maybe just trying to understand and apply a passage of Scripture. Once again, the 843 exchange is 525-1859, or you can email us here directly into the studio, and that email address is TBL, stands for the Bible Line, at wagp.net. People also, from time to time, can call now during the week and submit their questions, voice, uh, on on a voice message, and then we'll play your voice message. When you call and leave it during the week, keep it short, succinct, under 60 seconds, if at all possible, so that we can air it. And then, of course, when your question is answered, we email you back with the uh, link so that you can listen to it. So with that said, Rick, let's go ahead and we'll get started this morning. Well, we had a lot of calls last week and uh, didn't get a chance to get this one in at the last minute. Kelly called and would like some scripture reference showing that the rapture is before the tribulation. She wants to be able to demonstrate this to friends. Okay, so uh, a couple of um, uh, issues here that you might consider. One would be to listen to my series on the Revelation and specifically to the messages that I give uh, in Revelation 2 and 3 on the seven churches. So Christ addresses seven angeloi, seven angels uh, that are what we would call senior pastors, so to speak. These are not literal angels. Very often uh, in Scripture, the term angel is used of people. And so, for instance, uh, the uh, John the Baptist is called an angeloi, his an angelos, his um, disciples angeloi, plural. Uh, they are messengers; they're human messengers. So Christ doesn't speak to an angel and then say, "Hey, go tell this to your church." He's speaking to what we would call today the senior pastor, kind of a leader amongst leaders. And so, there's a number of places where I dr- address this. Certainly, you could look at uh, Revelation 4.1, where the Bible says, after these things, after the messages to the seven churches, he moves to the futuristic part of the book. He has spoken of the things that he had seen in chapter 1, the things that are, that's chapters 2 and 3, and then specifically, uh, the things that are after these things. I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven And the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. And so this door is opened into heaven. John is caught up. He sees uh, 24 elders uh, that are representative of the church, the body of Christ, and they're in worship to the Lord. Why? Because God has removed his church, and he's already made a promise to the seven churches 
And it's not written just to one church because at the end of each message, it says, he who has an ear to hear, let him say, uh, let him hear what he says to the churches. And so, for instance, to the church at Philadelphia, right before the fourth chapter in Revelation 3, because you have kept the word of my perseverance. That, by the way, is a mark of conversion. You're not saved by persevering, but if you are saved, you will persevere. And such descriptions are used not only before the rapture, but after the rapture. So, for instance, in the Olivet Discourse, speaking of tribulation saints, people who are converted after the church is removed, and we call them tribulation saints, the word saint is not simply used in reference to church saints. It's used in the Old Testament of believers. It's used in a future time frame during the tribulation of people who are converted, and certainly in this age. Um, but he, he speaks here to the church at Philadelphia, um, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is going to come, he says, upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. There, by the way, has never, ever been in the history of man a time of testing that has come upon the whole world. You say, what about the World War I and World War II? Well, that involved a number of nations, but not even half the nations of the world. But we still called it a world war. He, he's speaking of a time of testing that God will bring that he describes vividly, starting uh, with the uh, seal, then the trumpet, and the bold judgments a time, Jesus said in Matthew 24, that had it not been cut short, no flesh, no person would be able to survive. So we're not talking about some pandemic like COVID that, you know, maybe we've lost a million people. I don't know. It depends. Did they die with COVID or from COVID? But we've lost, obviously, a lot of people through COVID more than we have ever lost through the flu in any given year. But still, what we're talking about during the time of the tribulation doesn't parallel anything you can even think of in all of human history. So this door is opened in heaven. So if you go and listen to that message on Revelation 4, I walk through over the course of an hour and 15-minute sermon a number of passages that speak of Christ coming for his church. You know, in John chapter 14, uh, Jesus made this statement We often uh, read it at funerals, and it certainly would be appropriate uh, for us to do so. But he said, don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So he's coming for us to take us not to the earth and leave us here on the earth to rule and reign. He's first coming to take us where he is, to that place that he is prepared. And so Paul says, we don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, those who have died, so that you don't grieve needlessly like those who have no hope. Because he says, if we believe Jesus died and rose again, and that's our confession as believers, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. So when you die, absent from the body, present with the Lord, the person inside your human shell goes home to be with Jesus, and he will bring you back. He will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Well, for what purpose? Well, he says, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord. When did Jesus make this statement? When he was um, in the upper room, uh, all of it in the upper room discourse. And we just read it from John 14. 
For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, that he's bringing back, I mean, he's bringing back those who are are departed. They're going to be reconnected to the body. They're going to come out of the grave. And then we who are alive and remain will be caught up with them. We call that the rapture, caught up, raptoro in Latin, harpazo in the Greek New Testament. People say, well, the word rapture is not found in the Bible. It's a man-made doctrine. Well, it is found in the Bible, in the Latin Bible, which was the principal translation used in the body of Christ for nearly a thousand years, um, but it's found in the Greek text, harpazo. I don't care what you call it, the catching up, the rapture, uh, the harpazo. We're going to be caught up and we're going to meet the Lord in the air. That's very different than the second coming, unless, of course, you just eradicate the second coming and in, in the sense that he comes back to the earth to rule and to reign, and that's what our amillennial friends do in this day, they just say, well, there's just one big event in the future. Jesus comes back. Uh, he, he takes us all to heaven, and that's it. Well, you have to spiritualize hundreds of verses, literally hundreds of verses of Scripture that speak of a coming kingdom. And so occasionally you'll have guys even like, you know, Philip Yancey, he's a good guy, wrote a book on heaven, but he took most of the passages that dealt with the coming rule and reign of Messiah on the earth and just said, well, these are passages that are describing heaven. Well, they're not. Um, Look, there's going to be a river that flows from the Temple Mount all the way to the Dead Sea, and men will be able to fish in the Dead Sea where nothing lives. That's never happened. Christ is going to set his feet on the Mount of Olives and split it in two. So Christ first comes, uh, and he catches up his church. He comes for his church, but then we come back with him at the second coming where he comes with his church where we will rule and reign. But again, that's just kind of the short answer. Listen to the first message out of Revelation 4, and I walk through all of some of the evidences for a pre-tribulational rapture. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And John from Maine is on the line. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hey, John. Good morning. Thank you, Pastor. Your, your program is an incredible blessing. Um, real quick background. I profess to be a Christian all my life. I'm, I'm in my 50s now, and it was about uh, nine years ago when I realized that I was deceived. And um, I used to listen to you. I'd come across your program on the air, um, and uh, I'd just be filled with dread. Now I just embrace it because I truly repent and believe and receive Christ as my Savior. That's great. All that to say is that I've been uh, digging into the Word ever since that moment, and um, I I believe I have—I'm I, actually—so my question, I'm looking for, I have a question and some seeking some guidance. Okay. My question is, is there a gift of preaching, and is that different from teaching? And the reason I ask that is I, I believe ever since that moment I've— I've had a passion for uh, developing sermons. I've, I consider myself a, a backup preacher. I belong to a very, very small church. I do not meet the biblical requirements of a pastor, but I do have a passion and a desire to preach the Word. Um, so my question is, is there a gift of preaching? If so, is that different from teaching? And the guidance question is, um, if I do have that gift, which I believe I have, how, how do I use that in such a small community? So I'll, I'll hang up and listen. Thank you. 
That's great. Uh, I'm assuming he's listening. What is it? WBCI or WBCI? Yeah, Portland, Maine. Out of Portland. So uh, that's that's wonderful to hear you share that, John. Um, a couple of thoughts. Uh, understand that there's distinctions in the New Testament between an office and a gift. And so, for instance, there's the office of apostleship. No one can serve in that today because to be an apostle, you had to have seen the risen Christ. You had to have been personally selected by the Lord Jesus to be one of his apostles. And if those two things were true, then there would be certain signs, wonders, and miracles that would basically affirm that calling and that picking of Christ to be an apostle. That's the office. But then there's the gift of apostle. It's the same word, apostolos. And um, so Epaphroditus, who did not serve in the office of apostle, is called an apostle in a non-technical gifted sense, in that, in that the word apostle means a sent one. And so people with the gift of apostle, and there are four central passages that deal with the subject of gifts. They're easy to remember, two fours and two twelves, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4, and then Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. So there's gifts and there's office. So there's the office of pastor. And so the requirements for the office are found in 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1. Someone might never be able to meet the requirements to serve in the office, but they could still have the gift of teaching or the gift of pastor teacher. In fact, women can have the gift of teaching and the gift of pastor or teacher. That's very distinctly different from the office. So the office may show itself typically as a senior pastor or as a lead pastor or as a teaching pastor in the local assembly uh, where he opens the scripture and he teaches the people and he shepherds the flock. Uh, someone with the Uh, who serves in the office of pastor, may have the gift of teaching, they may have the gift of pastor teacher. And that would be, I think, the ideal gift to fill that office. But certainly, as much as anything, a pastor who serves in that office over a local assembly is to feed the flock of God. That's his principal job. That's the way in which he really shows his love for Christ and for the people of God. I know in some churches there's the mindset, well, if you really love me, go fishing with me once a week, or we'd have coffee all the time. Or, You know, if, if I did that as a pastor, I would never have time to prepare for the things that I need to prepare for to feed God's people uh, the kind of meal that they need. So you may have, indeed, the gift of teaching or the gift of pastor, teacher, and they're very similar. The difference is the gift of teaching tends to be a little more academic, where the gift of pastor, teacher, again, gifts are not restricted to sex. A a woman can have these same gifts, and she might use that gift in shepherding women or in shepherding children. Uh, indeed, the place in which a woman uses the gift is different. She can't serve in the office of pastor, but she may have the gift of pastor, teacher, or the gift of teaching. And by the way, it is one gift. It's the gift of pastor, teacher in Ephesians 4. And by the way, it may be of interest to you. It sounds like you have a real heart to study God's Word. Uh, We have something called the Institute of Biblical Studies. Occasionally, you may have heard me reference a course that people can take. And one of the courses is on the subject of spiritual gifts. And so um, it's um, 150 pages long, but you'll 
work through everything the Bible says on the subject of spiritual gifts. And there's even a spiritual gifts inventory uh, a missionary wrote this morning wanting to know if he could use the inventory on search the scriptures. And I said, he wanted to know, A, if I wrote it, and B, was it copyrighted? And yes, B, it is copyrighted. And A, I wrote every single question on it. Uh, and yes, you can use it as long as uh, if you print it, um, the version that's online out on paper and just leave the copyright on it. Um, with that said, I want to encourage you to maybe take that course because in that course, for instance, you would learn, and he gave some as apostles. Here he's not speaking of the office, but of the gift, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. Now, if you're using the New American Standard, you'll see the repetition of the word and, uh, chi, three times, chi, chi, chi. And then when you come to pastors and teachers, um, it's a different word and. And it's not by accident because the Spirit of God wants to underscore that this is one gift. So if we were to try to capture the Greek without using the word and in modern um, writing, we might say pastor slash teacher. So that's one gift. And the function of these gifts is for the equipping of the church to do the work of the ministry. And so these gifts are uh, shepherding gifts, uh, overseeing gifts, leadership gifts, evangelistic gifts, and they are designed specifically um, in order to uh, help the church. So I said, I, I reversed it in my mind. I just opened my Greek New Testament, and, but it's the word D-E, duh, uh, is the first three ands, and then chi is the last and. And so he's dis- he uses a different Greek word in order to uh, distinguish uh, that this is one single gift. So how can you use it in your local church? You might teach an adult Bible fellowship. Um, you might be asked of the pastor to fill in on a Sunday morning while you're not the pastor of the church and you don't take the role of the office of pastor and all the responsibilities that come with that. You might possibly fill in on a Sunday morning. You might not, but you might. Um, you certainly could lead a Bible study in your home. There's a lot of ways in which you could express that particular spiritual gift. And so you might want to nail it down because um, in this spiritual gifts course that I teach, and I actually did my doctoral dissertation on it. The, the title of the dissertation was The Discovery and the Development of spiritual uh, of spiritual gifts for a spiritually based ministry in the local assembly, um, and so what I speak of is not just discovering your gift, but then developing your gift because you want to develop your spiritual gift, and so we give ways in which to do that. And I think that would be helpful. And I hit on some of these practical questions that you are asking this morning. That's a very uh, lengthy and uh, very informative uh, course that you teach on spiritual gifts. As a matter of fact, if somebody who thought they had the gift of preaching, uh, they likely would also have the gift of prophecy, which, you know, when you think of prophecy... Yeah, so prophecy is like a speaking gift, as is um, exhortation, as is teaching, as is pastor-teacher. Those are all speaking gifts. Now, they will show themselves differently. So someone say with the gift of exhortation. They may teach the text, but they're going to really drive it home with uh, 
exhortation to do something with that information. And so they might not go into the same detail and minutia and raise issues that someone with the gift of pastor, teacher, or teacher might do, but um, they want to drive home typically a a single point. So there's not a gift of quote-unquote preaching, but there are speaking gifts, which would be the gift of prophecy. Uh, Charles Stanley would be a good example of the gift of prophecy, not in a foretelling sense, because the canon of Scripture is closed, but even Old Testament prophets who served in that office not only foretold the future, but then they foretold what they had already uh, been given of God or what God had already revealed, say, through Moses. And so you would preach what God had already revealed, but again, if you served in that office, you would be able to authenticate that God had called you to that office based on Deuteronomy 18, and that you'd be able to tell a short-term prophecy that had come true. So that was a preaching gift. And so the foretelling aspect is still very much alive. And so a Charles Stanley, for instance, he would uh, have, and I, I know he's just stepped down from the pastor. He's like 90 years old uh, of First Baptist Atlanta. Um, but his ministry was, I'm just going to drive home a single point out of these 10 verses. And you know what that single point is. He may not teach the text in detail, but he's driving home a single point and, uh, and with great power. So again, these are different gifts. They express themselves differently. And if you want to think through all the various uh, delineations of each gift, take the spiritual gifts course. I think you'd really benefit from it. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, Alberto from Savannah is on the line. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Yes, good morning, gentlemen. Uh, that's a call, Gordy. I know one time you mentioned about in one of your Bible line programs, you answer about you'd like to reach the African-American community in your area. And I've been doing the same thing, thing here for Savannah for years, giving thousands of gospel tracts. And I don't see too many churches in Savannah doing it, even the African-American churches doing it. So what is the problem you think the churches are not evangelizing, reaching their communities, even among the African-Americans? Well, it's a great question, Alberto, and I appreciate it very much. Um, I'm committed to reaching anything in our community that moves. I don't care if the person's Hispanic, African-American, Japanese, Filipino, um, and we have a multiplicity of ethnicities living in Beaufort County. It's one of the fastest-growing counties in the southeast. Uh, When I came here, there was 120,000. Now we're over 200,000, and it just keeps growing, housing going everywhere. And so... Um, The Great Commission is to go make disciples of all nations, and very often we take that word nation, and we think of it in terms of, oh, well, Switzerland and Germany and Romania, and and those various geographical designations might initially or even historically represent a typical ethnic group, but not typically anymore. So if you go to Germany, uh, because the German people for the most part are not having babies and the population growth is actually negative in terms of German ethnic people. They have had to open the doors to Muslims and all these other countries of the world in order just to survive because they don't have workers to run the factories to do all kinds of different professions. 
So when the Lord said, go make disciples of all nations, it's the word ethnoi. He's talking about all the various ethnicities of the world. So it might be someone who's African. It might be someone who's Hispanic. And you could further, of course, uh, subjugate those various designations. There's different kinds of Hispanic people and so on. So our commitment is to go for anyone and everyone who's in our community. So how do you break out of that? How do you break out of the typical church where if you walk into the typical church in America, uh, it's rather homogeneous. Now, a homogeneous church where everyone basically looks alike and is very similar may be good if that's representative of the community. But there are a few communities in the world, and certainly in the United States, that are like that. Uh, When I came to Beaufort County, um, it was 38% African-American. So if I was going to be committed to the Great Commission, then how could I ignore 38% of the people? Of course, that's changed the demographic. Now the demographic is 19%. It's not that there are fewer African-Americans here, but um, percentage-wise there are fewer because there have been so many implants who come from various parts of the country. So people have to, one, be saved by grace, and two, they have to grow in grace. And as you grow in grace, you begin to see people differently. You see, if a person is just a babe in Christ, but converted, they may not have grown enough in grace to see people the way God sees them. And so their tendency will be to invite people who are much like themselves. So if they're wealthy, they'll hang around with wealthy people and invite wealthy people. If they're poor, they'll hang around with poor people and invite poor people. But if they were poor, they might not think of reaching out to this wealthy person. Maybe they work for them or maybe they interact with them or meet them for the first time because, you know, they're rich. And they don't really see that rich man the way the Lord does, that he's as lost as the poor man that the black man is as lost as the white man without Christ, that everyone needs a savior. So for people to begin to have and embrace that mindset as a way of life, they have to be growing in grace. And that's where the pulpit is instrumental because sadly today pulpits are not really teaching the people and they may have enough to have crossed over into the kingdom to be born again but they've remained babes in Christ. And if Billy Graham was correct some years back when he said 90 to 95% of the genuine, not Christianized, but the really genuine born-again Christians have remained babes in Christ, then you can understand the dilemma. So a lot of it comes back to the pulpit. The pastor is supposed to be feeding the flock of God. That means he's not going to be at every hospital bed as much as he'd like to be. It might be that he can't go to your house for dinner as much as he'd like to because there are priorities that he has to have first in his own relationship with God, secondly, with his own family. And if he has children, certainly those children. Sadly, a lot of the jokes about pastors' kids are true, and they shouldn't be. And then thirdly, his ministry uh, to the people of God on Sunday morning or Wednesday night or whenever it is that he opens up the Scriptures and feeds them. And when that begins to happen, people begin to grow. They become healthy, and healthy sheep will reproduce. And they won't reproduce simply people who are like them, but people who 
are lost and need a savior and those folks who are of every brand and stripe all around us and that's representative of a healthy church. Good question. Let's keep going. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line and uh, Abby dictated her question a few minutes ago. She says, as a Christian, if I think uh, someone I know is demon-possessed, how would I know, and what should I do about it? Well, it's a good question, and uh, this whole dynamic is beginning to change here in America. Uh, It was very unusual to find someone who was demon-possessed in America 50, 60 years ago. But you could travel to other nations of the world where it was not necessarily unheard of. And so when I went to the Ukraine uh, for our first trip in 1997, I brought my 14-year-old son with me, who's now 40. Um, We had a lot of questions about demon possession. Why was that an issue? Because, for one, for 70 years, Christianity was oppressed. It was put down. People were arrested and sent to the gulag and Siberia and all kinds of awful things happened to them. And we met a lot of those people who had walked through uh, those horrors. And uh, the official religion was, quote-unquote, atheism under communism. Uh, They had, quote-unquote, churches, but most of the churches were KGB agents. And so the Orthodox Church, like in the Ukraine, Russian Orthodox, but largely Ukrainian Orthodox, uh, was filled with KGB agents, and it was really sad. Um, so there's a lot of, of form of Christianity in Ukraine without the genuine item. For the most part, it's the Baptist church in Ukraine that is representative of evangelical born-again Christians. There's some others, but they are large, largely in part the, the true church there, those who are born-again, those that, that preach the gospel. But Because it was so dark for so long, there was demon possession. You go to a place like Haiti, where they openly, unashamedly worship demons and the devil, then obviously demon possession is more common. What's begun to happen in the United States is people have opened themselves up to the door of evil, and they have become fascinated with these kinds of things. You know, we used to have when newspapers were popular a decade ago, full-page ads in USA Today uh, where you could, you know, call a number and get your palm read or, or you know, or, or you know, the, you'd talk to a psychic. And these things were just like unheard of years ago. But these are open doors into the occult. So, um, again, I, I, I wouldn't necessarily suggest unless someone is mature uh, in their faith to deal directly with this. And I, and I say that based on Galatians, though any Christian potentially can deal with demon possession. Um, I think the leadership of the church is admonished in the book of James to be the one who take the lead in dealing with people with any kind of sickness, uh, especially spiritual sickness. Uh, there, of course, the context is with a believer who's caught up in sin 
and is indeed um, experiencing problems, physical problems, because of their unrepentant sin, and so they're coming to the elders of the church. But I think the principle applies in a broader sense, like in Galatians 6, if anyone is caught up in any trespass, you who are spiritual mature, restore such a one to a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. If that could be said of believers dealing with errant believers, then I would certainly underscore its importance in a believer dealing with someone who's demon-possessed. So there are certain marks of demon possession. You know, some things that we write off as mental illness is not mental illness at all. It's demon possession. And some things that people think are is demon possession is not demon possession at all. It's, it's some form of mental illness. Uh, many times caused by sin uh, that people um, have brought on themselves and they've broken their own spirits and their own chemistry and their own minds by things that they have done. But, you know, I've dealt with demon possession a few times. There's some interesting characteristics, like when you look in the person's eyes, you will literally see sometimes their pupils go from large to small, from large to small. That's not just something in the movies. Um, though I don't know if they've ever shown that in the movies or not, but um, it, it's something that's real. And if uh, a person, you know, is seeking help, as you pray over the person in Christ's name, then very often a demon might manifest himself and literally speak from the person. And again, you know, I don't encourage anyone to go seeking some kind of ministry in dealing with demons, especially if they're new or young in the faith. This is something for a mature Christian, and you need to be cautious in it, and neither are you to go around thinking that there's a demon under every rock and every problem is related to some demon. 99% of the spiritual problems in this country have nothing to do with demon possession, but everything to do with just disobedience and rebellion towards the living God. So, you know, you could start by asking yourself or asking this person if they've been involved in the occult because there's usually steps that are taken. Like uh, very often these rock bands that without shame, you know, share their demonic emblems and symbols and tell you that they openly worship the devil. Uh, the pathway into that was drugs. Very often it starts with pot and it becomes stronger and uh, they open themselves up. Uh, the word for sorcery in the New Testament is the Greek word pharmakeia, pharmakia, and it's we get our word, you can hear it, pharmacy from it. And so drugs are an entry level into the occult and very, very dangerous. People who begin to be fascinated with Ouija boards and seances and things like this, they are actually opening themselves up to the demonic realm. So it doesn't just happen. There's a series of steps that people typically take. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And we have Faye from Savannah on the line. Faye, I just read here you were recently at one of our new members' lunches. I'm sorry I didn't get to uh, see you. Yes. Uh, uh, <laughs> good morning. Good morning, yes, Faye. Yes, I do attend the Grays Campus, which I consider that a blessing to be part of that fellowship. But um had an interesting conversation with one of my brothers the other day, 
And that was in regards to are we living in the Laodicean church era, meaning that um, I've been I have a book by Todd Hampson that's the book of Revelation for the Nonprofits Guide. And there was a breakdown, a little chart that the post the apostate postmodern era uh, started, you know, it's not in stone, but started maybe 1925 till today. And it goes back to giving some distinction about the seven churches of Revelation. And um, like I said, my brother's response was, well, that's not in the Bible. And I said, well, I think that's a good question for Pastor Brogy. Okay. <laughs> so I'd appreciate your answer. And I do want to say, Pastor Brogy, thank you for the series on Jonah. It's been a blessing. So I'm going to hang up and listen. Well, I appreciate it. So uh, what I would encourage you to do is I've preached through the whole book of Revelation. And I have, in the introductory sermon and several times through it, have unfolded various approaches that people have taken to understanding the book of Revelation. There's what we call the idealist view or the spiritual view. It's sometimes referred to where people say, well, the book of Revelation is just giving us a bunch of ideal principles on how to live a Christian life to deal with good and evil um, this view uses an allegorical approach to Scripture. You had guys like Origen, uh, and he largely uh, discipled and influenced a man by the name of Augustine of Hippo in the 4th century. He came you know, a couple hundred years after, but nonetheless, his writings had a profound influence on Augustine. So they allegorized the whole book of Revelation. They didn't see it as history. Uh, real problems to that view— uh, simply because when you look at uh, the Christian dealing with prophecy and the believer dealing with prophecy, there's always been a literal historical approach by the church fathers, when I say Christians. And even in the Old Testament, where you have Old Testament prophets interacting with one another, for instance, in Daniel uh, chapter 9, he's reading Jeremiah 25, he literally interprets prophecy, and all the prophecies for the first coming were literally fulfilled, and so to take it differently for the second coming is a big mistake. Then there's the preterist view, which preter is from a Latin word that means past or, or beyond, and so the preterist teaching basically says not only Revelation, but the Olivet Discourse, it was all fulfilled before 70 A.D., and a lot of people who are in the Reformed camp today I take this point of view, um, and it's, uh, I think, a distortion of Scripture. And there's differing amounts of preterism. There's full preterists and partial preterists, but uh, they take all of Revelation, with the exception of Revelation 19, where Jesus comes back on the clouds in glory as being historically fulfilled. Well, again, you have to twist the Scriptures. They apply a different principle or of interpretation, what we call a different uh, hermeneutic when it comes to uh, dealing with prophecy, at least second coming prophecy, because they're not consistent. They don't do this with first coming prophecy, but they apply a different principle for interpretation than A, what Jesus modeled, and, and B, what historically the church fathers took. Hank Hanegraaff was uh, kind of a popular 
radio show guy. I don't even know that he's on the radio anymore. I know he had had cancer. Um, in either case, he, he was a very famous preterist. Uh, in in uh, R.C. Sproul would be a, a classic preterist um, where, again, you, you, you end up spiritualizing the text. R.C. has gone now, but he, he knows better. Then there's the historical view, and that's kind of what's happening in Revelation 2 and 3. They're mixing the historical view with the futuristic view. So the futuristic view, which I think is how we are to understand the Revelation, is it's speaking of a future time frame. The after these things portion of the Revelation that starts in the fourth chapter is all in the future. It hasn't happened yet where the historical view of Revelation says, well, no, it, it, it wasn't fulfilled during uh, the time frame before 70 AD, like the preterist argues, but the historist view basically says it's being fulfilled as you walk through uh, church history. So they would see like Muhammad is the fallen star and uh, the first bold judgment uh, being Elizabeth I and Adolf Hitler being the rider on the red horse. And the problem with it is there's no precedent found anywhere in Scripture for interpreting the Scripture that way. And it's really um, a distortion of approaching the Scripture. And interestingly, you'll never find two historicists who come up with the same interpretation. So you highlight uh, Revelation 2 and 3 as representing in your friend's eyes, these different stages of the history of the church. And so that now we're in the seventh church and the final stage of church history. Well, the way you would hear it interpreted that way today is different from someone who took a historical approach 200 years ago. And so some individuals who held to this view would be Luther and Calvin and the way they approached it. Luther and Calvin thought the Antichrist was alive in their day, that the man, the Pope of Rome, was the literal Antichrist. Um, Their approach was different from Swingley or Jonathan Edwards or Whitfield. But it's um, basically built around the historical view, much like the Preterist view, with what's called replacement theology, that the church has been uh, taken the place of historical Israel. So when you come to Revelation 2 and 3, and I walk through, I do actually a sermon on each of these churches. Uh, These are problems and issues that can apply in any age at any time, and they can happen in different places all at once. So it's not really representing seven different stages or phases in the history of the church, and so now we're, you know, at the very end and Uh, the church at Laodicea. Well, certainly what's representative of the church of Laodicea has happened throughout the history of the church. And certainly as we come to the end of the age, because sin will increase and men's hearts will grow cold, there'll be a lot of lukewarmness in the church. But I don't conclude from that that these are representative of seven historical stages in the history of the church. But that's what the historicist does And the way Luther interpreted the seven stages and the way Jonathan Edwards understood them is far different from the way people are understanding them today. Because, again, you're really left wide open as to what the text means. And so as a general principle, when the plain reading 
is before us, that's what we should interpret. You know, you don't make up things and say, well, this represents this. You let the Scripture interpret the Scripture. Otherwise, we get into real problems. Good right. question. All right, eight four three five two five one eight five nine, and um, let me see if we have a live caller. We do have a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. We have Sharon on line one. Hey, Sharon. Hello. Thanks for calling. Go ahead. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I have a question about Ezekiel's temple. I call it his temple, but you know, it's yeah, the Millennial Temple. temple. Yes. So w- when? Will that temple be uh, active? What time in history? It's a superb question. So uh, if you look at the end of chapter 39, uh, what he has uh, prophesied uh, in the previous chapters, like, for instance, just to give you some context, he is speaking of the new covenant, the same new covenant that Jeremiah spoke of where God says in Ezekiel 36, I will give you a new heart and I'll put a new spirit within you and I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. That's never happened. Uh, That is yet to happen. And so in the 37th chapter, you have the vision of the Valley of Dry Bones where the bones are first gathered and then the bones are given life. And again, it's a picture of what God promises to do in the future with Israel. He came to his own, his own received him not. However, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. So for the most part, the Jewish people were in unbelief. But again, it's prophesied in the future. It's uh, descriptive in Jeremiah. When you take Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-six and you cross-reference it, it's going to bring you to the prophet Jeremiah, and there in Jeremiah, he is going to underscore this same new covenant, and he's going to let us know that this new covenant is going to be unconditional in nature, that it's not predicated on Israel's obedience, that God is going to fulfill it no matter what, because he is a faithful God. And so there when he describes the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. This is a covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel. Almost the same words. I'll put my law within them on their hearts. I'll write it. I'll be their God. They'll be my people. They'll not teach again. Each man his neighbor, each man his brother. Why? Because they'll all know me. How so? Because I'll forgive their iniquity. And of course, the replacement theologian of our day who spiritualizes the scripture, because again, Moses predicted it, Jesus said it, that because of their unbelief, they would be scattered to the four corners of the earth. And that started in 70 AD, when Titus Vespucian came down, conquered Jerusalem, the Jews were eradicated, and then there was a small rebellion that followed a few decades later called the Bar Kopka Rebellion, 135, 136 A.D., and then the Jews were basically exterminated from Israel with a few small pockets in different villages. And this is what the Lord said would happen, but then he said at the end of the time he would regather them. And so what theologians did is they said, well, maybe we've misunderstood what the Scripture said because 1,900 years have gone by, and God certainly has not regathered the Jews. This is what they were saying in the early part of the 20th century. And so they concluded 
much like Luther and Calvin had concluded, though for different reasons, that uh, God was done with Israel. But right after he mentions this new covenant, thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the seas that its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, then the offspring of Israel will cease from being a nation before me. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured, they can't, obviously, and the foundations of the earth searched out below, they can't. Then I will cast off the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. So this was an unconditional covenant that God made with Abraham. We call it the Abrahamic covenant. Abraham was asleep when the covenant was made, when God split the animals in two. Generally, two living persons would walk through the dead animals that had been split saying, I'll do to you or you can do to me what we've done to these animals if I don't keep my word. Well, God puts Abraham to sleep and only God walks through the split animals because it's an unconditional unilateral covenant. And he is affirming this, that what we see uh, realized amongst born again Christians today still is in the future. And it is Certainly, it's going to happen as long as you can see the sun and the moon and the stars hanging up there in the sky. But then God says at the end of time, he is going to gather Israel. So in Ezekiel 36, he underscores this truth, that he would gather them from the four corners of the earth, for I will take you from the nations. He's not talking about just coming from Babylon or from Assyria. I'll take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. So that's the physical regathering. That's that's the bones coming together. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and I will make you clean. That's the spiritual regeneration. And by the way, the verse that I just read from Jeremiah 31, it's in the context of what this Jeremiah the prophet calls the time of Jacob's trouble. In the New Testament, it's called the great tribulation period. So during the great tribulation period, that's when the Jews are going to be awakened spiritually. But before the final prophetic plan can be fulfilled, God has to gather the Jews because there's certain prophecies that are predicated like the battle of Gog and Magog. That hasn't happened yet. That could happen before the rapture. It involves Russia, interestingly, Iran, Turkey, Sudan, and some of the stand nations, um, but that's going to happen. It's going to be a war that has never happened, different from the Battle of Armageddon, where Israel is going to win because God's going to superintend um, their victory. And then, of course, he describes Israel being restored, and so then beginning in Ezekiel 40, he describes this new temple, and we call it the Millennial Temple. So there was the first temple that Solomon built, The second temple, after it was destroyed, that Zerubbabel built, Herod fixed it up and made it nicer. Some would call that a third temple or the second temple remade. And then there's the third temple that is yet to happen. That's the tribulational temple. And if you go to Israel today, sometimes I'll take our groups to um, what we call the Temple Institute. It's right off of the Western Wall, not far away at all, just a few hundred yards. And we go in there, and they see all the plans for the future temple. Uh, They want to rebuild the temple. They've manufactured all the temple furniture, all the priestly garments. 
that's going to be during the tribulation that that one is built. But then when the Messiah comes back to the earth, a much larger temple that will encompass a piece of property much larger than even the Temple Mount, which is 36 acres, and it will be the millennial temple, and God will teach truth from it, and he will also use it evangelistically for the children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren of tribulation saints who enter the millennial reign in their natural bodies. And so there are people at the end of the millennium, as you read in Revelation, where where the evil one, Satan, has been bound for a thousand years, and once he's loosed, he, he gathers these people. Who's he gathering? Not the initial saints of God who are converted during the tribulation, who enter into the millennial reign of Messiah in their natural bodies, but some of their children. God has children. God has no grandchildren. And even with Messiah reigning on the earth, one of the functions of the millennial reign is to really show how fallen man is. And so when the thousand years are completed, Revelation 27, Satan will be released from his prison and he'll come out to deceive the nations which were in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. And the number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. So God puts an end to this. Again, this happens at the end of the thousand years. This is not the battle of Armageddon. This is a battle at the end of the thousand years. So there's like three major battles underscored that are still futuristic. The battle of Gog and Magog, that could happen next week if God so chose. And I think God's putting everything in place for that to happen. Uh, Then there's the battle of Armageddon, and then there's this final battle at the end of the millennium. But one of the functions of the millennial temple, there'll be sacrifices there. And some people have objected to this. Like, who do they think they are? God? Telling God what to do? Um, Oh, this can't happen, and this is just some weird interpretation of Scripture. No, it's not. Uh, it's what God says he is going to do, just like he's going to have a river going from the Temple Mount to the Dead Sea where men will be able to fish. Literally, it's going to be fulfilled. It never has been fulfilled. He's going to fulfill this coming prophecy, and men will learn from it, and they will see through the animal animal sacrificial system what the Messiah did and their need for the Messiah. So they're going to witness visibly all that Jesus accomplished. When you uh, go and do a study, say, on the tabernacle, every stitch, every piece of furniture all pictures the person and work of Christ. And so will this coming temple. We will just be in awe and wonder of the greatness of our God and all that he's accomplished. Well, we're out of time, but I'm glad that you could join us today for the Bible line. And God willing, we will be back next week. Have a great day as you walk with Christ. 